A reading from Paul's epistle to the Romans. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This is the word of the Lord. So I don't want to say forget that gospel reading, but don't have it in mind for uh, what we're speaking of today. Our gospel reading was, that was from Matthew 15. It's actually going to be from Matthew 14, 22 through 33, and Matthew 15 will be next week. Uh, so, um, Matthew 14, if you guys just want to look at it real quick, it's about Jesus walking on the water, and we're just, 
the front sheet of your outlines has Genesis, Psalm 105, 1 Kings, Psalm 85, so Psalm 119 selection. And we're just going to be on the back today. All we're going to talk about is Romans 10 and uh, very briefly on that Matthew. So let's pray and get started. Father, we're here to honor you, to hear your word, to uh, know you more through your voice. We pray that your spirit would uh, quicken our minds and our hearts, uh, not just to be obedient to you and to understand your word better, but to, to know you on a deeper level. We pray this through your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> so, I thought it was important enough, or at least easy enough to talk about, to only talk about the Roman passage, uh, and really we're just going to focus on that. So, as we get started, this is the 10th chapter of Romans, which means we've gone through nine chapters so far, right? So that first note, Socratic texts require Socratic interpretations. So what is a Socratic argument? It's point, it's point by point. It builds, it builds, it builds, it builds, right? It's a, a logical way of, of bringing some kind of argument where you go to point A, then you have to, after you understand point A, you go to point B, and after point B, then point C, then D, and so on. And if you get to E, and you're just reading E, and you don't understand A through D, then you don't, then you don't get the point, right? Then it becomes very easy to misunderstand it, uh, to misinterpret it. And so that's what we kind of find in a lot of evangelical Bible-believing culture today of where we extrapolate certain texts or certain um, passages in order to put our own ideas in there. And um, I did that this week, not in this message, <laughs> but I did that this week. It's very easy to Google. You can Google Bible verses on why you should eat pork, and you'll find Bible verses on why you should eat pork, and it'll support your ideas. You can Google Bible verses on why you should not eat pork, and you'll find Bible verses on why you should not eat pork. Those are two opposite ideas. Which one is it? Read the whole of Scripture and find out, and then eat a BLT. So uh, some of this is, might be like a little bit review for some people, um, but this is always good to, to go back, and I kind of want to just look at Romans 10 in a little bit broader context. We'll, we'll read, a, read a little bit larger section um, going back to chapter 9. But what's, does anybody know or can describe what authorial intent is? The author meant something, right? The author has an intent behind his writings, and that's our purpose as Christians, right? We're trying to figure out what the author's intent is. That's a, that's a major idea. That's, that should be something that's like obvious, like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Somebody wrote something, and if you want to understand what it means, you have to understand the author's intent and read more and understand. You, know, you can do things like understand the culture, understand various things. On, like in Paul's writing, you know, in uh, Philippians 3, when he says he counts it all lost for the sake of knowing Jesus as his Lord— 
like all that's in context of saying, I was a Pharisee, I did all these things, I had all these accolades, I was born in the tribe of Benjamin, I did all these things, I had great zeal for the Lord, even started killing Christians, I loved God so much. And he says like none of that, like all of that is the background to his life of why he's, you know, forsaking the way of the Pharisees, of the teachings of the synagogue system, and he's devoted his entire life to planting churches and traveling around, you know, Roman colonized Rome um, to do what Jesus called him to do, right? And the more you know about Paul, the more you know about his writings. Uh, I'm still waiting to read a book by N.T. Wright called Paul uh, that Anvesh bought me for my birthday like two years ago. I think it's on the list this year, (laughs) but it'll be on the list next year too, unfortunately. So authorial intent is huge, right? We live in a postmodern world uh, where your truth is your truth, and that's true, and my truth is my truth, and that's true. And it's, we even do this in Christian culture, and the whole point of this is we're going to examine not the world, uh, but the uh, misuse of this text in Christian circles, and so on. And so we even have these ideas have infiltrated our Christian circles so much where we have Bible studies and we read passages and say, well, how did that speak to you? How did that make you feel? What did you get out of it? And those are, I think those are good questions for a certain purpose, right? You could really draw out of people um, things and Proverbs talks about that uh, the hardest man like is, a, is like a deep well and the wise man draws it out, right? And just a practical thing to how to draw people's hearts out is to ask them questions. And those are good feeler questions. Those aren't good questions to understand God's intent, right? Uh, not always. And, and so when we look at the authority of scripture is God spoke, the Holy Spirit inspired people to write it down in scripture and so that's all ultimate authority because God spoke and the scripture is the scripture because God spoke it and we believe that and we can look at different evidences and facts to back that up, you know. Um, but the point is, is that scripture interprets scripture. That is the ultimate authority on how we should in- interpret it. So, right. So the... Um, part that I'm getting at is you really have to understand Romans 1 through 9 to understand this. And especially, uh, I'll probably get into this more in our gospel reading next week, but just to give you an idea, which I haven't really talked about on these Wednesdays, is all of Matthew is leading up and he's doing these various things um, and doing these miracles and we're following the storyline of Matthew. And it's going to come to a culmination in the storyline in Matthew 20... 1, 22 to 24, where he's breaking covenant with Israel and they kill him, right? And so, but he's making a huge point that, that he's uh, calling a new group of people. He's coming for the new covenant of what had been prophesied and, and everything. So anyways, so let's look at Romans and let's just carry back a little bit to chapter nine. And because this brings that, that point in that Jesus is building a new people group and obviously Romans. Does anybody know the dating on Romans? I'm not really sure about it. Um, I think it was written in the 50s, 50s AD. But uh, chapter 9, verse 20, 
Um, let's go with 21. And I'm just going to read 21 through uh, chapter 10, verse 4. And then that, that which carries into our, our reading. So chapter 9, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his mercy and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he has said in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it were based, but it, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling block, as is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So listen to this part in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For the end, or the Greek word telos, or purpose of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Right? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So we live in this postmodern, post-Christian world uh, where for a couple hundred years now, we've um, had those, po those postmodern ideas and new interpretations on various things. And I think it really comes out when we discuss the scripture readings in, in Romans 10. How many people grew up believing that um, if you uh, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved, and you say a sinner's prayer and go to heaven? That's what I believed. That's what I was kind of taught. Uh, how many people were taught the Romans road? I wasn't. I wasn't taught much, but I looked at it a few times. Uh, right? And so, but what is biblical faith? Right? We say these things, and we have in this Christian culture, you know, in the, in the greater sense, you know, um, especially in the West, probably because of our prosperity, is that, you know, there's prophecies or there's warnings and all the way back to Deuteronomy that like when you come into the promised land and you get all these things and your, your wine vats are overflowing and the fields and you've got, you know, you're, they're essentially going in to steal the land or be given the land that was already 
cities built, already have crops, they have everything, they don't have to build it, it's already been built, and they're taking it over, and not like they had worked really hard for this prosperous thing, it's just that God's going to take them into the land and drive out the other people. And so there's, there's warnings in Deuteronomy, and I believe in Exodus, all the way back to Exodus, of like when you come into the land and you're prosperous, do not forget these things. Don't forget where the Lord has brought you. Don't forget the teachings. Don't forget these things. Because when you become prosperous, it's really easy to, to slack off. It's really easy to be like, well, you know, everything's going well. And you just take it easy, right? You don't, you don't uh, put the pedal to the metal and work harder. It's, it just becomes, it's a natural, it's probably part of the fall of that we just become too easygoing and, and prosperity. And that's kind of where American Protestant Christianity has been for the last 150, 200 years. So, you know, with that being said, we have, you know, this idea of the sinner's prayer and uh, sub-biblical confession you know, when he says, like, confess with your mouth, we think, we start thinking, or at least I do, if you guys grew up any, what, in a, any, any sense in a culture like I did, where it's just like, it just means speaking it. Just confess Jesus is God, and, and I believe, because I said it, and it's, I believe there's a God, and I think that's Jesus, and uh, my parents go to church, so I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to have a lot of fun until then. <laughs> not, not doing what the Lord wants. And so, I think that's where we're at. And I think that uh, uh, is why Jesus warns, I think it's the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's go to Matthew 23 real quick, just to give you a little context of my idea behind this. And then we'll read over back in, in Romans. So, Matthew 23, 13 through 15. Part of the woes right before Jesus is breaking covenant. Um, sorry, in verse 13 of chapter 23. But what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. proselyte and when he has become a proselyte, you make him twice as, as much a child of hell as yourselves. Right? And we go all the way back and then put that in the context of Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's and desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Right? These are, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about people who grew up with the patriarchs, knowing about them, had better catechisms than we do, had better Bible teaching, and, or more consistent, at least, Bible teaching than we do. But somehow there's a disconnect in the teaching to the people, what he's condemning them is for, is that they're not understanding, right? Paul said he had a zeal for God, right? And what was the fruit of that? Let's kill the Christians. <laughs> I don't think that's what God was going after, you know, when, when he was uh, calling Paul to a Pharisee, right? That wasn't God's means of doing things. And so when he's saying this, like these are real people who have grown up in a huge Bible-saturated culture who have a zeal for God, have a lot of knowledge about God, have a lot of, could answer a lot of questions, but they have no knowledge about God, right? Not according to knowledge, right? They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not like real based in knowledge of God and real understanding of the scriptures, 
And, and we profess and we say with, with Romans earlier that, that faith in God is a gift and repentance from God is a gift. So God has to give it to us, right? But what are the means at which he uses, right? All throughout scripture, we see, you know, the family unit passing down these things to the children, the assembly or the church teaching these things in culture and other people, prophets and evangelists teaching those things. So we have to be faithful to teach and use God's methods and so that's why I'm just really harping on this this week of re-examining what we think the gospel is, like re-examining what we think, you know, Christ came to do. And when we preach the gospel, how do we do it? And what are we, what are we first believing about ourselves and how deep does the gospel go? And because that would dictate how deep we, we preach it to others. And um, something, you know, that, uh, I think I was talking to Nathan about, even though Nathan didn't go to the counseling course, you know, talking to Tiffany and everything, is we were having a discussion about like how great this counseling course is and because it's just gospel-centered and gospel-centered and gospel-centered. And Nathan made the comments like, you're just learning how to do discipleship. You can call it counseling if you want, but this is just discipleship, like 101. Like, okay, because they're just as systematic as I am thinking. And they're like, okay, someone comes to you. Do they want to be counseled? Yes. Do they want to submit to God's word? No. Okay, then we start there. <laughs> Do they want to be counseled? No. Then you don't have a counselee. <laughs> then you pray for him. You preach the gospel or something. And uh, same thing. Do you want to get discipled? No. Then you're not getting discipled and you don't have a disciplee. <laughs> right? So, anyways, getting a little bit back on, on track. And so... Uh, going back with like authorial intent, I didn't mean to go that far off of the bullet points, but uh, you really have to understand all of Romans to get to this point. And one of the reasons why, um, you know, you look at the second to last bullet point on the sinner's, the sinner's prayer is just, a, uh, is just a bastardization of the biblical faith. And because it doesn't cause you to repent. It doesn't cause you, like when you look at the Romans road, does anybody have it memorized? Does anybody ever use that? The first one is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the problem with that, if that's where you start? And like I'm talking very specifically in our culture, or let's just talk biblically. <laughs> What's wrong with starting there? You skip chapters one and two. <laughs> and so those are, you know, the big thing in chapter one is everybody knows God exists. Everybody knows the true God. There's not a single person whether they've heard of Jesus or not, who isn't culpable for their sins before God, whether they've had the gospel preached or not. And that's why we get to chapter 10, how will they call on him and be saved whom they've never heard, right? And so the problem with the Romans Road approach is not that that isn't a good tool and not that I haven't used that myself, but the approach is it just minimizes the gospel and minimizes the scriptures, Right? And so one of the things and why I love, um, you know, our church, one of the things I love, I would never attend any church that didn't do this, that doesn't spend tons and tons of time with people helping them understand because I'd personally never experienced that. Probably people were trying to do that in their defense in my past uh, church experiences uh, but not that I was going to do that anyways. <laughs> I wasn't open to that. But, right, 
Because when you start with like all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, well, what does that mean? What is sin? What's the glory of God mean? Right? And we, we come to these like, you know, I think there is in every culture, everybody knows that people aren't, even if they say they're naturally good, everybody knows people do bad things. Everybody knows that. So you're just saying that in a Christian way that they have no idea what they're talking about. And maybe you don't have any idea what you're talking about, but you're just trying to quote scripture, which is a good motive. And so the problem with that is, is, is I really want to harp on this, is we have to have a deep understanding. Like we have to take our understanding of the gospel more seriously. We have to study. We have to understand, you know, God's intent in, in as we're looking at Romans in how he structured the book. You know, I love looking at God's sovereignty and, and providence of who Paul was. Um, not just because he has a troubled past and he becomes um, such a, you know, arguably the highest, you know, apostle out there because he wrote 13 books of the New Testament and Peter only wrote two um, and helped with and oversaw the Gospel of Luke and presumably a lot of Acts. But um, but looking at like how God used Paul of like having, he, like Paul didn't use people off the streets to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the gospels or to write the epistles. He just didn't. He just, and we don't exactly know why. It doesn't say didactically, but I'm presuming is because Paul studied so much and he took so much time to re-examine his thought process. And, and um, because Paul was the epitome of the Jews who had rejected Christ. And he sat there and cheered on and held the coats for Stephen stoning as Stephen's like giving this like <laughs> awesome sermon. And they're like, well, it's, we're going to stone this guy. And it's all based on the, you know, because of the letting the Gentiles in. But anyways, so... I want to just like give some practical things about like how to understand and tools you could use or what you can do as you're reading scripture to um, understand the epistles, the letters, any, uh, any, really any parts of scripture better. So especially where we look at, um, I just want to look at verse 13 in chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is, if you have... In ESV, like I do, I stole this out of a church pew, and I've been using it for six or seven years. And the ESV has, has the quotes from Scripture in quotations and has a little uh, notation that tells you the Scripture reference at the bottom, which is Joel 3, I'm sorry, Joel 2, 32. So if you turn to Joel, if you have a pew Bible, this is the exact same pew Bibles we use, it's page 763, but that's not true for everybody. So one thing that if you want to understand scripture better and if you, you want to figure out if your interpretation or what you're thinking or even what you were taught is correct, go back and you can do this with every quotation in scripture and you should. You know, um, so that's quoting, uh, Romans 10.13 is quoting Joel 2.32. So you go to Joel 2.32. That's got to be, is that 32? Yeah, it's the last, uh, last verse in chapter 2, right? So what you could do to help you understand, 
let me mark my page, to understand scripture better, is read all of Joel. When you come to sometime anybody quotes scripture, read all of the book of Joel. I read that today in like 30 minutes or something. Um, and figure out and read all of that in mind with the arguments and, and scriptures that are in Romans and the arguments he's making and where he's going. And then look at Joel and get to that verse. Because Paul read the same thing. And then he wrote about it. I was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So if you read Joel, you find out that Joel is pretty ominous most of the book. And he's talking about this awesome day. The day of the Lord is coming. The day is coming. The day of the Lord, right? Obviously, he's talking about when Jesus returns and his second coming, right? Maybe? No, <laughs> he's not. Uh, if you read it contextually, Joel's also, read um, Joel 2.28, right? Peter quotes this. You should probably know Joel pretty, pretty well because Peter quotes it. Uh, it's quoted a couple times here in Romans. Um, and there's some other, there's some other uh, scriptures that quote, quote Joel. So, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out on my spirit my spirit on all flesh, right? Peter says that that was accomplished in Acts 2. So if you read that contextually, the awesome and uh, great day of the Lord would be before that. And if you read it, it's talking about atoning for sin and, and it doesn't say a new covenant. He doesn't directly use the words that he's gonna have a new covenant, but he's using the same type of language. And so I'm just saying, when you read through scripture and you see a quote, Go back to that book, right, and read it. And don't just read it in, oh, that's like, you know, that's pretty close, and read a couple of verses around it. That'll help you a little bit. It'll help you a lot more getting better understanding if you go back and understand that whole book of the Bible, what it's saying, what are the main purposes, and then go back and pick up in Romans, right? So when it says, calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it seems like, at least in contextually, this is, I'll bring this out more next week in our Matthew passage, is contextually, Paul's writing in a time before the second covenant or before the, the Jewish temple was destroyed. And so I don't think he's just talking to the people here that they're going to call in the name of the Lord and they're going to be saved and from destruction of Jerusalem. But that surely is in his mind, right? He's talking about uh, being justified by faith, having faith with God, being saved by faith, not by works, and having a, you know, go back to the first four verses of chapter 10, and having a right understanding of righteousness and the law. Right? So, it, he never, nowhere in the Bible talks about a sinner's prayer and just praying a prayer, and, um, you know, of what we would, we would interpret that in a modern way. Right? So I think we all have, um, or could think of ways we can examine that and think of our kind of low view of the gospel and our understanding and trying to figure out what, what God has actually intended, right? And you can go all the way back into chapter nine where he quotes Isaiah, I believe. Yeah, Isaiah one, Isaiah 10, 
Hosea 1, right? So you'll, and part of what we call that is the apostolic hermeneutic. So the New Testament scriptures are interpreting the Old Testament accurately. We have to come with the assumption that uh, if we think that the Old Testament was talking about something, uh, that the New Testament writers actually got it right, even if it seems different. Does that make sense? So that comes into play like in um, Matthew 2.15 that quotes Hosea 11.1 1, that we talked about last week or two weeks ago is Hosea 1 is talking about real Israel, right? And real Assyrians, or I think it's Assyrians or Babylonians that are going to come and attack them in context. And somehow uh, Matthew got it in his, in his mind that that's all actually talking about Christ and his flight out of Jerusalem into Egypt, right? You wouldn't normally read Hosea 11 and say, oh yeah, this is clearly about the Messiah coming, the true Israel, and he's going to flee from his own people into Egypt, but real Egypt is going to be Israel. You, would, I, you could read that for a thousand years and probably never get that out of the passage, <laughs> Right? So you have to understand the apostolic hermeneutic of taking the New Testament. How do they understand it? How are they using that scripture? Go back, read large chunks, read your whole Bible, and then re-examine it. And that should take you years. So to study more, look at authorial intent, re-examine the gospel of your understanding of that, re-examine how you preach that to yourself. Because when you look at you know, our passage in Matthew of, of Peter's going out on the water, right? We, we all know that story of Jesus is, he is up all night praying, comes down, the boat's out there, so I guess he can't get another boat, so he walks on water. And all I, if you look at your notes, you know, Matthew uses uh, about four times the saying that Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. Right? I think you know when Jesus is calling him out on the water and, and Peter goes and he starts looking at the wind and sees the destruction and then he starts doubting, it says, and sinking. And then uh, Jesus' response is, why do you have so, much, so little faith? Can't you just like walk on the water? <laughs> why can't you, why are you sinking? Like, Jesus isn't like, okay, hold on, just hold on, I'll grab you. <laughs> it actually seems pretty harsh if you, when you're reading it, like, why are you doubting, Peter? And, but that's the same faith that Paul's talking about, that that faith is this, this inward, like Peter had enough faith to, walk on, to go out of, of the boat. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I've got that much faith <laughs> at all. Uh, if Peter had little faith, I've got even less. <laughs> and so... Um, that faith that like Peter actually stepped out, he actually did something about it. It's not, you know, uh, Jesus didn't find it good enough, so to speak, to when Peter said, you know, uh, if you're Christ, if you're Jesus, call me out in the water. And uh, Jesus said, come. And Peter said, I'll come, but I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to say I believe, but I'm going to stay right here. Right? It's the same faith. So we have to, when we think about when, you know, this, this inward turning, this change of, of heart that we could never, you know, change ourselves. 
Like God is not obligated when we say the sinner's prayer to save you. If we say a prayer like, God, please forgive my sins, he's not obligated. He's not obligated to do anything for us. It's only, you go back to Romans 9, it's only out of his mercy. We're saved by his mercy. His faith is a gift that will change us, that will cause us to look different, to act different, to do different things. And, you know, go back to chapter 7 about the law and and everything. And so, um, hopefully that helped. And I'm just going to add one thing. We're not going to go into it because we have one minute. Uh, in, chapter, in verse 4 of Romans 10, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Telos is the end. That means the goal, the purpose. Christ is the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, you, can, you should be able to read Romans and see that we're not throwing out the law by chapter 3. And uh, that doesn't mean that the law stops or is of no use to us after we become Christians or after we get converted. Uh, it means that the purpose of the law was to point us towards Christ and righteousness. And that's the means God uses, uh, chooses to use to convert us and who the, and that's what the Holy Spirit uses to uh, see the depths of our sin in a real way, in a real knowledge, and, and convert our spirits and souls. So hopefully that helped. Uh, let's pray and then worship. Father, we pray that your word would be near to our hearts and in our mouths. We pray that we would meditate on your word, we would read your word, we'd re-examine it, and uh, by your Holy Spirit, as we study, uh, we trust that you would be with us to know you deeper, to commune with you deeper, and have um, a zeal for you according to knowledge. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.